Hey everybody, welcome back to the Grey Malkin Lane podcast, where queer friends and allies gather to review and discuss the original X-Men comics from the 1960s. We have been in the 2000s for a while, putting in a ton of retroactive continuity into the 60s books, but we're back to 1969 today. We're going to be reviewing X-Men number 61 from October 69. We're getting close to the end of the first volume of the X-Men, which ends at 66. Uh, today's episode is going to be titled Monsters Also Weep, which is the title of <laughs> our very Shakespearean X-Men battle with Sauron, my favorite villain. Uh, I'm, I'm going to give more context to Sauron and what happened last time. Uh, but for those of you that are following the show closely, X-Men number 60, we did a couple episodes back with the incredible Steen Stewart. So go back and listen to that before this if you want to go directly from one into the next without the break. Uh, I am thrilled to welcome back two returning guests, uh, Ramsey Fawaz and Phil Ewing, and I am thrilled to in uh, to bring aboard a new guest, uh, the incredible Derek Scott, who uh, wrote an incredible paradigm-shifting book, uh, and who is a friend of Mr. Ramsey Fawaz. So uh, I am uh, I'm so happy to have you all here. Let me have you each introduce yourselves. Uh, I'll have you use your gender pronouns. Let us know where we might know you from. And the bizarre question I'm asking in introductions today is, is there a time when you maybe did not get along with the significant other's parents? Uh, <laughs> for the parallel for our issue today, Sauron and Tanya Anderson's dad do not get along. <laughs> we'll talk about that in a while. Uh, let's go in the order of uh, Ramsey, Phil, and then Derek. Uh, I'm like, Sauron doesn't get along with himself either, so it <laughs> makes sense. Uh, uh, I'm Ramsey Fawaz. Some people might know me because I wrote a book called The New Mutants uh, about superheroes and radical politics since the 60s. Uh, and I've been, I've spent a lot of my career writing about comics as a professor of English. Um, I don't know, maybe I've had the good fortune of never having met a significant other's parents. So I don't even I don't even have that experience. Maybe I've been blessed for now. You don't, you don't get the uh, it's it's Thanksgiving. You got to sit down and watch the football game, son. No, not yet. <laughs> not yet. Who knows? There's something to look forward to. <laughs> and then we'll go to Phil next. Uh, hi, guys. This is Phil Ewing. I'm a longtime comics fan and amateur comics creator, very amateur, as in never published anywhere. Uh, people might have known me at one time from NPR, the NPR Politics Podcast, and NPR Public Radio News Coverage out of Washington. And now I am a returning guest on Grey Malkin Lane. Yay! Any uh, any stories with a significant other's parents come to mind, Phil? I guess I would have to say that when I met my wife's parents for the first time many years ago, they were not anticipating the quantity of alcohol that I would bring into our family, intra-family situations. And so when other people would show up with like a box of crackers and cheese cuts, I would show up with a 12-pack of beer and a bottle of Johnny Walker Black, for example. <laughs> um, but that went over well, and it went over well for me. And so uh, although there was some uh, initial apprehension there, it, we all managed to make it work out. Fantastic. And then uh, finally, I am so happy to welcome Mr. Derek Scott here. Hi, Derek. Hello. Thank you for inviting me to be part of this. I'm excited about this conversation. Uh, I'm Derek Scott. I'm a professor of African-American studies at Berkeley. You might have heard of me because of my most recent book called Keeping It Unreal, Black Queer Fantasy and Superhero Comics, which is all about fantasy and its relationship to superheroes and reading superhero comics and how important that was for me um, as a child and as a, an adult uh, in terms of 
navigating the anti-black and racist and uh, misogynist and anti-queer world that we have. Um, and also um, about just the how reading comic books is kind of transformative in terms of being, in terms of your consciousness. And thinking about fantasy is not something that's just an escape, but is something that does something in the now. Uh, and then do you have any uh, awkward significant other parent stories? You know, it's a difficult question because I really, my, my husband's parents are both now deceased um, and I got along with them really well. I was really trying to think about, you know, when you first meet uh, your significant other's parents, it's awkward, um, but, and I remember the, I remember the awkwardness and them, you know, we not knowing each other, but I don't remember actually having any kinds of conflict uh, with either one of them. So, and they were pretty, <laughs> They were pretty prickly people in some ways. So uh, <laughs> how I managed to do that, I'm not quite sure. But uh, but no, I got along with them very well. They were lovely people, really. Yeah. Uh, and then lastly, I'm Chad Anderson. You know me as the host of this show. I, uh, I've i been with my husband for six years-ish. And I uh, had children before we uh, we got together with a woman. Uh, so the listeners of my show, show know the parts of my story. So the story I'll share very quickly. The first time I met his family, we were at this bizarre little Mexican restaurant in a tiny Utah town. And his mom was kind of lovely, a little nervous. She's a sweetheart. We get along great. And his grandmother is in her 90s. She's in her late 90s now. So she's in her early 90s. And she has this this breathing thing. She's a very, very tight kind of sharp breaths. And I'm not going to whisper into the microphone because this is not an ASMR <laughs> podcast. But she's sitting next to me. She's this lovely, lovely woman. And she says, basically in her voice, she says, Chad, nice to meet you. I have a question. And I said, yes. She goes, if you're gay, then why were you married to a woman? And I'm like, oh, wow, we are off to a start. <laughs> I love when uh, when you get to meet families and it's the awkward conversations. My mom likes to do a lot of uncomfortable like trauma questions. So when she first met my, my husband, she's like, so your dad left when you were a kid. And I'm like, oh, this is strangely akin to my first meeting your family. <laughs> so there's always, always moments when we get to uh, navigate that awkwardness. Uh, none of us, weirdly, turned into a pterodactyl and tried to kill our girlfriend's parents. But uh, we'll get to that a little bit later in the show. It's awkward too, though, to be honest. <laughs> its own kind of awkward. Uh, we last had Ramsey on the show for X-Men number 57, uh, where we got to lust over havoc and talk all about uh, <laughs> the queerness of the yeah. living monolith and everything going on. Uh, I am so happy to welcome uh, Derek to the show. Derek, when I first emailed you and got a, an email back, I was just like, oh my gosh, yay. Uh, I think your book, uh, much like Ramsey's, is very paradigm shifting. It fucked with my head in all of the best ways. Uh, I had a chance to listen to one of your lectures at UC Berkeley before I emailed you. And uh, the way that you view the world and analyze uh, queerness and uh, focusing that on superhero ethics and and uh, the, the, the conversations around that uh, messed with my brain in a great way. I've been reading comics for decades uh, and it really uh, it really was just a powerful, beautiful uh, incredible way of seeing things differently. Uh, Ramsey's books have done the same for me. Uh, yours has a particular uh, narrative track that juggles a lot of really heady and heavy concepts in a really magical way. Uh, so I want to start with a question you explore in your book, which uh, for, for our, our listeners, it's called Keeping It Unreal, Black Queer Fantasy and Superhero Comics. I'll post some images when we release this episode. 
you you spend a long time toward the middle of the book identifying the concept of fantasy itself. Uh, can we open with that question? How do you define fantasy? Mm -hmm. The short answer is I define fantasy as consciousness. Um, so part of what I do is to go through all the ways that we think about what fantasy is. And usually we're thinking about it as it's the antithesis of reality. And therefore it's, you know, it's escape from reality. It's an opiate of a certain kind. Um, it's, it's less important, obviously, as it, you know, the way we think about it than reality is. Um, and I was interested in thinking about uh, in the book, how, if we don't take that hierarchy, if we don't say, well, you know, fantasy and reality are completely opposite and reality is the more important aspect than fantasy. If we start thinking what actually is reality, it's an interpretation of the data of the world that we live in rather than some sort of you know, unmediated, unmediated access to it. Uh, and then what is fantasy? It's all these kinds of creations of the mind, uh, our minds in relationship to other minds. Um, that to me is what if I look at my sort of philosophical traditions that I'm interested in, and somebody like Jean-Paul Sartre in existentialism writes about how consciousness is essentially a removal from reality. So I think about fantasy as really being fundamental to just who we are uh, in the world, like our consciousness as we interact with a world that we never really have unme unmediated access to. So, I mean, that is the, it is a, you know, heady kind of theoretical way to consider what fantasy is. Um, but I'm looking at it in terms of, well, here we have a, a genre that we have things where people can walk around and get shot with bullets and it bounces off their skin. They can walk through walls and they can fly. They can do all these different things, which are very unreal. Uh, and we think of them therefore as having no relationship or a very tangential relationship to reality. Um, but I think that as I participate in reading a comic book, uh, a superhero comic in particular, there's a kind of transformation that goes on of me as I'm reading it um, and engaging with it and using the participatory imagination you have to have when you read a comic book. And there's also in some ways a much more subtle, and this is, you know, you kind of need 400 pages to talk about this, but it's the there's some sort of transformation of reality too, right? That both things are kind of going on, transformation of you, but also of the real. So that's, it, that's the, I mean, as you were talking about the kind of the, the heady theoretical stuff, that's, that's the way I'm thinking about it uh, in, in keeping it unreal. Um, and I'm way oversimplifying as I respond here. Uh, I, in, in social work, I'm, I'm a trained therapist. We think in terms of micro, meso, macro. So it's the little stuff, the medium stuff, and the big stuff to keep that overly simplified. Uh, the way I experience the community experiences or the culture experiences. So fantasy, it's easy to look at a Saturday morning cartoon as fantasy, mm -hmm. but you introduced the concept of things like money is a fantasy. Mm -hmm. Concepts like the, the the societal rules that we build around things are also fantasy. It's a shared fantasy. It's something that has been ingrained into human society, but it doesn't exist. We build rules around these things. Uh, and even that alone, you're just like, whoa, it's, a, it's incredible to start analyzing things from that perspective. Uh, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I... I think I get that from a number of things. I mean, one of them is just, I have a little bit of a background in, when I was in college, I majored in human biology and, you know, just a little bit of just, it's it just kind of basic perceptive mechanisms of the brain uh, that is, you know, we're not actually ever 
able to perceive everything that even we that even we perceive we're, we don't, we're not conscious of it consciousness doesn't track all of those things we're always interpreting things and we're always interpreting them in light of what we've been taught and what we've experienced um and that's also the basis of trauma studies in in, in the academy where the idea is that you've had a trauma so you said your, your mother likes to ask about traumatic questions you've had a trauma and it transforms how you perceive the present when you get triggered that's the, that's the notion of what a trauma does that is you know you the sort of horrible example like you watch your sister dragged away to the ovens in the holocaust in auschwitz or something uh and there's some detail about that which 20 years later uh, you can see like the maybe a color red or something like that that triggers you such that you're seeing um, and perceiving the the reality that you're in at that present in terms of that past. And so that's the to me that's that's actually what perception is always doing. That's how we're always operating. Even though trauma is an extreme example of it, we're not ever really fully present and fully capable of knowing everything that's going on in any given moment. Um, and so that it, for me, that 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 means that um, the things we think of as real are interpretations of the real. That's why I call them their realisms more than they're real. Uh, it's there are all kinds of things that we believe uh, that we've been taught to believe or that we understand is true, that we interpret our reality as that are that when you subject them to a certain kind of logical bombardment, uh, then you start thinking you realize, well, actually, this is a a creation. It's a creation that we're all participating in, and that makes it real, um, and it real for us, but is it an actual description of all the processes that are really happening at any given moment? No, it, it isn't. So time and season and political climate change our understanding of this these fantasies and culture that we create. But to keep this nerdy, if we look at superhero comics and the way that they have been interpreted over the years, superhero comics through the 40s uh, into the 60s are created almost universally by white men who are having power fantasies about nubile young women who adore them because they do these superheroic things and punch bad guys in the face. And there's, there's a bajillion interpretations of that. Mm -hmm. The X-Men then comes into the picture and they occupy a particular space, although at the beginning it's very white. We start mixing in the idea of the outcast and the way they are treated and changing the definition of what superhero means. Then moving into the 1970s where we start to see characters of color and a little bit more portrayal of creators of color kind of mixing into the pot. And we're using our interpretation in 2022 of these comics as we analyze the 60s and 70s books from a current perspective, while we have the ability to analyze where they were coming from at that time. So uh, kind of setting up that bizarre framework for just a moment, Derek, I'd love to hear a little bit of your journey as kind of a comic book nerd into a professional and the way that you have viewed these Mm -hmm. uh, then lead us into where your book comes from, because I know this is a big part of it. In some ways, the answer to both those questions is the same. Um, I have been since 1973, when I was eight years old or something like that, I started to lose track when I'm this old, but <laughs> it's like, um, I saw a comic book on the, I was living in West Germany. My father's in the military and we were stationed there. Uh, he was stationed there and, uh, and we went to the American bookstore on the base and I, they had comics and I saw this comic, which was uh, Wonder Woman, I think 206, um, where Wonder Woman was on the cover battling her, as it turns out, black twin sister, Nubia. 
uh, and the image transfixed me. I'd already been reading comic books because I I've recently realized like oh I was reading Fantastic Four before that and had some other things that I was reading, but that one really just grabbed my attention. Um, and one of the things fascinating things about that is I've gone back to as a professional, as you say, as an as an academic, I've gone back to this image several times. <laughs> I've, I've written about it several times. Is that it is a really um, it's a it's an image that's very much informed by racist imagination. You have this black woman who's in a leopard skin skirt, uh, who that is not her costume. She never wears that at any point in any, any of the issues or in any other place. Uh, it's just there, she's being introduced and it's partly there to differentiate her from Wonder Woman herself, who she looks a lot like, but she's darker skinned um, and to underline her blackness, right? It's just that you're, you're, you're evoking the jungle, you're evoking Africa, you're evoking savagery and all the things which are associated with blackness. Um, and so it's a, it's a pretty problematic image, but at the same time, a really beautiful and wonderful image for me that really encapsulated something about the idea of a black woman having tremendous power like Wonder Woman does or did. Um, and that to me encapsulates kinds of, kind of what the history of comics has been like. Like you said, you had all these white male creators, you have in the beginning of the 1940s, somebody like uh, my absolute favorite comics creator, Jack Kirby, having you know, drawing uh, terrible black caricatures you know, in, his, in his comics. Uh, that was just part of the way the things were. It was it was always a kind of um, either consciously and or unconsciously racist and white supremacist kind of uh, imagination that informed the beginning of superhero comics and that continued for quite a long time. But still, as a black reader and as a black queer reader, I always take what I see and do with it what I want, you know, what I, 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 I fill in the blanks. I do things with those characters and with the situations that they're in that, um, I hesitate to say empower me because I think that's sort of, that, that flattens it out in some ways. It, it does a lot of different things for me to, to, to encounter Nubia, who was there for three issues and then disappeared for 50 years. I mean, you have an alternate notion of Nubia in the post-George Perez Wonder Woman, you know, who was not really anything like this Nubia at all. Uh, but she's now been revived, but 50 years, you know, where she's not even there, um, but stayed in my mind and obviously stayed in somebody else's minds too, because they revived her 50 years later. Um, and it's just, there's, you know, there's a way where as we read comics and you read, especially from the perspective of people who are not being represented in those comics, um, there's something you can still draw from them. I mean, I had the most illuminating conversation with my father, um, who was uh, born in 1941. Um, and at the same time that the, you know, the Kafabra um, hearings were happening and you had a, a, a Seduction of the Innocent coming out, um, he was reading comics. And he was one of the kids reading comics where, you know, it's causing juvenile delinquency and all kinds of horrible things and they're promoting homosexuality and blah, blah, blah. And my father was growing up in the segregated South in a horrible place, let me just say, you know, North Louisiana, heart of Klan country in, in that state, um, with all kinds of awful racist things happening to him all the time. Uh, my father, happily for me, uh, got out of that um, through working, you know, through becoming an officer in the military, all these various things. But I was asking him, well, how did you manage, you know, how did you, how did you navigate those, for me, even though I certainly live in a racist society and dealt with it, fairly unimaginable circumstances. Sure. Uh, and he strangely 
it, but it really didn't occur to him he was gonna say this. So, but you know, I used to read all these comics uh, and we didn't call them superheroes back then, but these people were really strong. And I just, you know, it just kind of piqued my imagination in a way that was really helpful for me. And he couldn't even really explain it, you know, too much beyond that. But what I recognized was that there was something in common between my connection to Nubia and the black superheroes who I read, like Luke Cage and uh, the Falcon and Captain America and the Falcon, et cetera, and his reading comics, which were wrenched with racism, um, but nevertheless somehow helped him navigate racism. Uh, and I, I was really interested in thinking about all the intricacies of, you know, imagination thinking uh, being that are involved in those kinds of processes and in, in keeping it unreal. We've had a number of perspectives on the show. Uh, just a few off the top of my head. Gabriela Garbero, who is disabled, talking about Professor X's portrayal in the 60s. Or uh, we, uh, I, I mean, I could give a whole long list here. But when we analyze these books that we love from these various perspectives, it really speaks a lot to what we find in them about ourselves. Uh, what does the X-Men, and this is a question I suppose for all three of you, but what does the X-Men mean to you? And I know that uh, the answer for me is very concreted into the space where I started reading the X-Men from as a closeted teen. Uh, I'm interpreting it very differently in my 40s, but I, it's, a, it's, a, it's a space I always kind of hold sacred because it had so much solace for me as a white, gay, closeted teen in America. But for each of you, uh, what are your journey? What do the X-Men represent for you as a fan? And who are the characters that perhaps spoke to you? Uh, let's, let's go in the order of, uh, of Ramsey, Phil, Derek and, and answering that question. Oh, this, I mean, this is such a central question to my whole like sense of being. You know, I, the, the meaning of the X-Men to me has always been about the negotiation of difference within difference. The idea that like, it's not simply that it's a group of people who are radically different from one another on the basis of race, gender, sexuality, et cetera. But the fact that as all, because they're all mutants, but also different among each other, they reveal that like even people who share a similar identity are not necessarily anything alike. So like the whole point of the mutant universe of the X-Men is the infinite multiplicity of the number of kinds of mutants there can be. So even if there's 10 members of the team who are all mutants, they're mutants in different ways. And so the comic book is con continually making an argument that like it's difference all the way up and all the way down and people have to negotiate their differences regardless of whether or not they share a cultural, social, biological identity. And that's really what the entire history of the series has been, right? It's not simply about representing diversity, which is often what it's collapsed into. It's also about representing how people negotiate their differences. So I, I often say like the Claremont run is so fascinating because there are entire issues of that run where characters just talk to each other, right? Like Anthony Michael D'Agostino talks about these beautiful scenes where Storm and Rogue just like talk about their particular mutations and how they experience them differently and they have communion across their difference. And it isn't about action adventure. It isn't about like violence. It's just about like communion. And so the last thing I'll say is like, I, I may have said this the last time I was on the show. So excuse me if I'm repeating myself. But like, I always think about the first issue of X-Men number one in the 60s. And I think like when people talk about the first introduction of the X-Men, they often talk about that issue as being like representing two forms of civil rights activism. They're like, um, Professor X is supposed to be MLK Jr. And like, um, 
Magneto is Malcolm X, which I think is a complete misreading of that issue. I don't think that that's what the issue is about. I often say like that issue is about what happens when a woman enters the space that is dominated by a group of male mutants. And the moment that Jean Grey enters this world, like it's no surprise that the beginning of that issue is like this gorgeous, intelligent, talented, young female mutant enters this space and like blows everything up. It's like in reaction to her, Iceman potentially becomes gay, right? Like 50 <laughs> years later. In reaction to her, you know, Cyclops becomes obsessed with her and his heterosexuality is like activated, right? Like everything is kind of undone. And that is the originary difference of the series sure. is gender. And I mean, we'll talk today, the issue that we're talking about, I mean, Roy Thomas seems, I'm learning now, that Roy Thomas is like obsessed with gender trouble around masculinity, right? And the internal division of men with themselves. And so, uh, so that, that's a long answer to your question that like, I think like the series begins with difference kind of breaking open people's relations and having to respond to that. Yeah, we're going to talk a lot about Tanya and Lorna in particular today and the possessiveness yeah. around them. It's it's troubling. <laughs> uh, Phil, same question to you. Derek, you know, I loved hearing you talk about this a minute ago because your uh, story really points up a lot of the differences between the early kind of Gen Zero, Gen One comics characters and comics properties and those that came later, especially with Marvel and Stanley and Jack Kirby and the other creators in the 60s. And this is a controversial take, but I'll put it out there. Uh, I don't know if it'll be controversial among you guys, but maybe some listeners will find it this way. Marvel is just so much stronger. Stan Lee's characters are just so much more powerful to me than many of those DC characters because they were built with this ability, as you guys have been discussing, to not only entertain us at a very superficial level, the comics are exciting, they're colorful, the art is wonderful, the stories are interesting, but they're, uh, Ramsey, as you were just saying, are all these threads and themes right from the get-go that are not there in the earlier books because the creators of that era either couldn't, didn't want to, didn't it didn't occur to them to address them. And so right from the beginning with Marvel and the X-Men, you see these things that come through and they're super interesting. They're super compelling. They You reach a point by, you know, again, within 10 years, 20 years, uh, I remember those exact same books in the Claremont series. Storm and Kitty Pride have these conversations about, uh, how uncomfortable it is for Kitty to be in her class. I remember, I can't remember exactly what the story is. And uh, she wants to use her mutant powers uh, to beat the shit out of one of the people who was bullying her. And Storm says, no, don't do that. That's not what we're about. You know, we have to help people. And Kitty says, basically, you know, well, Storm, that's easy for you to say, um, but you don't know what it's like to be in a position like me where you're different from anyone. And I mean, you know, imagine saying that to a black woman like Storm, again, in the fictional environment of the X-Men, you don't know what it's like to be different. You don't know what it's like to be a new person. And we, those micro relationships, Rambi, you were just talking about, uh, are, all, are all through that storytelling in a way that is consistently strong throughout the history of the property. Uh, you know, Derek, the other thing that's funny to me about Wonder Woman is, you know, Chad, to your point at the beginning about comics characters as these uh, Freudian or psychological, very fraught expressions of orthodoxy and male power and so on. You cannot do better than Wonder Woman as an example of that. And uh, the story happily has a happy ending because I don't know whether DC still does this or not. DC did a series about Wonder Woman relatively recently in which she was either bi or a lesbian. And a, a colleague of mine at the time who is a lesbian said, 
that it was the most meaningful thing she had ever seen because when she was a girl and there were no female superheroes that she could identify with and Wonder Woman was kind of the one that you had to go to by proxy, even still there was that barrier of representation. And it was incredibly meaningful to her for DC to have reached the point, whatever it was, 60, 70 years later, where understanding how these characters can reach people in situations like we're talking about when you're young and how much value that can create had finally prompted them to do something with her. And so that the the Wonder Woman thing is extremely fraught. This is not a Wonder Woman podcast, but we can all agree it's extremely fraught. But they did wind up in a place that was at least progressive and constructive. Absolutely. I could comment on so much of what you and Ramsey are both saying, but let me uh, let me turn that same question over to Derek. Uh, X-Men. So I think I, I the first issue of X-Men that I remember reading was the giant size, uh, all new, all different X-Men uh, that Lynn Wine and Dave Cockrum did, I guess. Um, and uh, I think for me, Absolutely, it was what drew me to it and what made it important to me because I then just started reading it. I was kind of desultory in terms of when I was reading, you know, for the first few issues, and then as soon as John Byrne came in, I, every single issue I was reading for you know many years, um, and I think because that team was a team that included Storm, uh, where Storm was a major part of it. And Storm was very powerful. I mean, it was something that was always important for me. And this is, you know, going back to the thing about Nubia. If I'm going to see a black character, especially if I'm going to see a black woman character, I want to see her to be powerful. I don't want the early 60s Sue Storm fainting and needing to be rescued and, oh, I can only just be invisible and that's about it kind of stuff. Or Wanda in the early 70s, the Scarlet Witch, like every one hex and then I'm done. Um, I wanted somebody who could really do her stuff. And Storm, to Chris Claremont's credit that I will forever be happy with him for doing this, he made her, I mean, until he introduced the crazy claustrophobia thing, um, but he made her really powerful. She was just, you know, and she, uh, and that I really connected to that for the same reasons I was talking about before. Um, but also there's a thing about mutants that I really always did connect to that I don't necessarily think gets, but like one of the things about it, you know, is we talk about it as, the mutants are the ones who are the outcasts. And but as a kid reading the comics, at first I was like, what what's the difference between a mutant and the Fantastic Four? That like they all got these crazy powers and running around in these costumes. Why are the mutants the ones that we're going to be considering to be, you know, problematic? And I wasn't really getting the metaphor, um, that the metaphor of you know racial difference or sexual difference or all those things that that I think Stan Lee, you know, and, and Kirby were trying in some ways to to work with. Um but I did get it by the time with the, the new X-Men. Um, I did get it then. And one of the things about it was the mutants are born with their powers. There's not, it's not an accident which brings about their powers. They're born with it. So part of their sort of inherent being, their, the, the being that they're given at, in the beginning of their lives um, is being a mutant, is being someone who has a superpower or you know, combined with deformities or all kinds of other different things that, that make them outcasts. And of course, that appealed to me uh, as someone who's African American and uh, you know born into a situation, born into a world that is oriented in many ways against me because of my skin color. So that um, that I just really connected to that. And and then in addition to that, I have to say what really I loved about the X Men was just it was powerful women, Storm, Phoenix, um, and it was all of that kind of exploration that Claremont was obsessively interested in. Uh, of the the battle within between 
good and evil, which, you know, <laughs> are sort of crazy absolutes, but they make sense in a comic book world. Um, and he was always doing that through all, all of his characters that seem to be having that they're on the edge between these things one way or the other, uh, or they're, they're, fault, they're going back and forth. I mean, even like Kitty Pryde, who said wanting to, to respond, you know, to, to someone's bullying, bullying her with using her powers to punish them. They're all storm, of course, going through her punk phase. And everybody does a, everybody has a, a kind of struggle with that. And I was always drawn to that. Um, because I think in some ways that's a meditation on power, uh, as well as a meditation on identity. And those are all things that uh, just fascinated me. They, really? they can't go back. That's what makes them such great characters. You know, like uh, the Fantastic Four, I feel like, lose their powers all the time. Sometimes Ben Grimm turns back into being a normal man. And like, we have five issues and then he goes back to being Ben Grimm again. But like, to your point, the X-Men are born mutants and they mostly, except for some stories that we also all remember, mm. uh, have to stay that way. And what makes the comics so great is they have to live with it and the world has to live with it or not. We've had a lot of uh, a lot of really incredible conversations on this podcast, but we've kind of been working through the 60s books uh, most. When Phil first came on the show, we analyzed X-Men number one. There's lots of conversations about anti-Semitism. I'm excuse me, X-Men minus one. Uh, as we get into the new year, this is kind of a preemptive announcement, but we're going to start adding more of the stuff that fits along the way. We get to start bringing in more characters. And I am doing some of this on the Patreon channel. Uh, Bar Fox and I have a wonderful episode about Storm's family. Uh, uh, Andre Mason and I have an incredible conversation about the uh, the supervillain uh, Moses Magnum. Uh, there's there's a lot of really cool stuff. But in the new year in 2023, we get to start adding more. We're moving past the 60s and into the 70s, and there's a lot more <laughs> that's going to be there to talk about. Uh, focusing on Marvel specifically, and these every every name I'm about to read could be a, a very long conversation, but uh, I'm just going to use these as kind of toss outs. Marvel has a long history of trying hard. Uh, Black Panther is the first one where they bring in a really prominent, powerful character of color, and they so often get him wrong. So often are the stories across the years. They are very racist. They are very uncomfortable. And we have to go back and look for the things that matter. We look at the modern interpretation of Wakanda as an incredible example of a nation that has always had that potential there, but the story is not always done in the right way. So when we look at the ways that Marvel has increased popularity of Black characters across the years, there's so many examples of it being done wrong, and then people kind of trying to take what matters and clean up the mess and make these characters uh, shine in new ways, and much in the way that they've done that with Nubia uh, in more recent comics. Mm -hmm. So just looking at a, a list of Marvel characters very quickly, Black Panther, Luke Cage, Rage, Black Goliath, the Falcon, Misty Knight, Deathlock, Monica Rambeau, The Blue Marvel, Shuri, Silhouette, Night Thrasher, Miles Morales. I mean, that's a short list of a very long series of characters that have often been portrayed not right, but then we get uh, examples of them when they're done by the right writers or done in the right ways. They're incredible characters. When we focus that on the X-Men specifically, and there are a lot of characters of color in the X-Men, but focusing just on Black characters specifically. Uh, Storm and Bishop have carried the weight of this on their shoulders for a long time. And Storm was around in the late 70s. Bishop didn't come around until over a decade later. And now we get more characters of color, but they're still often not utilized well. One incredible example of them being done well is uh, by Victor Lavelle's Sabretooth miniseries as lately, where he has multiple characters of color interacting. They feel like incredible nuanced powerful characters who are all interacting together. 
But the burden of it in the X-Men for so long has been on the shoulders of Storm and Bishop. Uh, Derek, I know this is kind of a big question, but what are your thoughts on the portrayal of characters of color in the X-Men franchise? Well, it is a big question because, of course, what you're talking about are, you know, decades of continuity, decades yeah, yeah. of issues, different creators, uh, different writers, different artists, and what they do. Um, I'll say this, speaking of Storm, since she's the first in the X-Men, um, there are all kinds of, uh, what would I call it? On the one hand, maybe silly, uh, on the other hand, just sort of ignorant kinds of constructions, setups for her Africanity, the fact that she's African, the ways in which they're not really thinking that through or they haven't really done any particular kind of research that later writers uh, would have an interest in doing, like Reginald Hudlum when he's doing Black Panther, he's doing a lot of research that, um, that and a lot of thinking through that Jack Kirby and, and Stan Lee weren't doing. Um, that Don McGregor was kind of doing a little bit, you know, but when Storm, there, there are things where there's, uh, She's, you know, she's in some temple uh, in some undisclosed place in East Africa, worshipped as a goddess. Now, why would she be worshipped as a goddess unless these people are primitive, you know, foolish people who don't know who don't know the real God or something like that? There are all these kinds of weird things that are that are set up there. Um, but, you know, that said, and of course, people are often critical of uh the way where you know her hair isn't really african hair it's a white woman's hair you know that's a platinum blonde essentially that she's that she's got um and all those things i think are true those are problematic aspects and they're part of just what one encounters in comics creation that is that there are always these um mistakes failures screw-ups uh insults you know that are present as part of the the characters um, but they're also because, you know, and Ramsey writes about this, because there's such a, there's constantly revision, there's constantly rewriting, there's constantly retroactive continuity, there's also lots of opportunity to fill in blanks, to more comp to complicate, uh, to do things that I, you know, as a kid reading it, might have already done in my own mind to make it work for me, you know, or to, to kind of feel the, the sense of potential that she had, you know, that Storm has. Um, that said, again, Storm was a it was a both complex and powerful character who, even if she wasn't very grounded in any real notion of where she supposedly came from, she was neither grounded in uh, any real Africa, nor her father as opposed to being African-American, did she have any particular connection to African-American communities as such, that none of that really seemed to have anything to do with her. Um, you know, nevertheless, I think you end up having over the course of many years, a really rich portrayal such that I can't really, I would never say, oh, it's just wrong or, you know, or it's, it's just poorly done. Even in a situation where things aren't great, um, I still wouldn't say it's really poorly done. Like we think about, like, and Ramsey writes about this in New Mutants, um, Black Panther, first appearance, 1966, Fantastic Four, all kinds of problematic aspects, uh, <laughs> things that just don't make sense. Um, but even there, there's potential for re for revision and there's, there, there's potential that Jack Kirby and, and Stan Lee are seeding even there. So that even there, it's not as, sort of ridiculous as they're 
their Africa, you know, is, um, it's, there's still possibilities, which later writers can, can really work with. So I, I just think it's a, it's a very mixed bag. Um, and I don't ever look at any of those characters as like, ah, oh, they just got it wrong. You know, like I, I, I don't usually think, unless they're characters who just are so much on the periphery that they never get a chance to get developed. Those are, that's where you run into more problems, but people like storm or characters like storm that those, you know, I, I think it's, there's a lot of richness with those characters that, um, yeah, it doesn't lead me to a sense of foreclosing anything when I think about them. Yeah, I mean, I was just gonna, uh, I was just gonna build on that, which is that I'm really interested in the places where possibilities are made available to readers, even when something is failed. So Storm is such an interesting example, like, um, you're exactly right that there's so many elements of her quote unquote African heritage that are done in really clumsy and superficial ways. But then, I mean, to go back to her claustrophobia, we get this extraordinary backstory that like she was claustrophobic because of the traumatized experience of like what happened in the Su like the Suez Canal crisis. Right. And so she's given this like very deep post-colonial history in Egypt, which while one could go back and also point out like, you know, written by you know, um, white Jewish Americans who have like an exoticized view of the Middle East, but like it's grounded in a real historical moment. Like her claustrophobia is like, it has a history that is our history. And this goes back to Derek's work on fantasy, that, that the book is basically projecting the fantasy of the mutant into the history of post-colonial Africa in this really, really interesting and surprising way that then becomes available to other creators in the future to do what they will with. Um, and I think the first introduction of the Black Panther is such a great example of that, because what's extraordinary about that story is that even though it trades on so many um, kind of exoticizing white tropes, it also imagines like a fully, uh, like a fully autonomous Black nation that is technologically advanced, that is also aware of its own history within the genre of uh, writing about Africa. So there's all these references to Tarzan mm -hmm. in those first those first introduction of the Black Panther, because the thing is always saying, anytime stories are told about African people, it's in the mode of Tarzan. He keeps like pointing that out. And he keeps demanding in a sense that T'Challa respond. And T'Challa's like, well, listen, girl, like, of course that's the way this story is told because we were colonized and like, we have to work through the trope, basically. And that's a fascinating thing. You're, it's like basically a white writer trying to have a conversation with themselves about like the history of the way white people write about Africa. Now that would have been far more complex had Jack Kirby like been in dialogue with black people about telling the story. But the fact that he's having an internal dialogue with himself as he writes it really opens up all these possibilities. So like the last thing I'll say is that I often say in my own work, like, look, there are so many different strategies for representing difference and diversity. And one of them is through metaphor. And we all know like mutation stands in for all these other kinds of differences like race, gender, and sexuality. And the other is to directly represent people of many different identities in the real world and flesh them out. And I think the reason you don't see a lot of black characters in the X-Men is simply because historically they relied far more on the first strategy than the second. And that now readers are demanding that they incorporate the second strategy 
And one of the claims I've made is without a genuine investment in the spirit of the original Claremont run, what you get is the introduction of a ton of quote unquote diverse characters who then get killed off in these mass genocide events that Marvel is obsessed with. And then it means nothing. So what you really need is all of those strategies playing at once. Like you need the metaphor and you need the actual representation and many more. And I think the X-Men lends itself to those possibilities even when it fails to accomplish it. One brilliant example of this, and we again, we don't have time to delve in, but the character M'Baku, the man-ape, is such a racist, awful portrayal mm-hmm. in so many of his parents. This is literally a black man, a, an African black man dressed in a gorilla suit. Mm-hmm. But then you look at how they portray him in the Black Panther movies, and he's one of the most celebrated, respected, powerful characters. Uh, it's, a, it's a really interesting thing watching the reinterpretation of these mythos. Uh, and this podcast has spent so much time slowly dissolving the 60s from a 2020s perspective. Uh, it's really fascinating to hear all of your portrayals. Uh, as we're getting ready to transition into the issue review, uh, Derek, I just wanted to commend your book once again. As I was reading Keeping It Unreal, I had to sit down multiple times and reread pages and set the book down and process my thoughts. Uh, I did the same with The New Mutants, uh, I, reading things out loud to my husband, who's ever patient with <laughs> my obsession with analyzing superhero universes. Uh, but really, really brilliant, wonderful book. Uh, so everybody listening, please pick up a copy. Please give it a read. Take it slow. Uh, there's uh, really brilliant commentary on on eroticism, on uh, superhero uh, fantasy over, over time. Uh, and the stuff on Nubia itself was just an entire education. So just brilliant work, man. It's a, it's a beautiful book. Thank you. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. Yeah. Okay. So we're going to, we've been super like heady and passionate already. We're going to get real nerdy because Sauron is nuts. <laughs> I will reemphasize this is my favorite Marvel villain for this very reason. Uh, just as a recap, we're going to do a previously on Grey Malkin Lane. I'm going to sum up some continuity really quickly. Havoc was wounded in the big battle with the Sentinels. Uh, the X-Men took him to the hypnotherapist, psychiatrist, Carl Lycos, who's an old ally of Charles Xavier who was involved in something called the Mutant Genome Project with he and Moira, which has literally never been explored. Uh, Carl drains the energy out of Havoc and turns into Sauron, uh, which he names himself because he's obsessed with J.R.R. Tolkien, which is already nuts. Uh, We then get a very lengthy uh, backstory into him. There's a lot of uh, a lot of page space devoted to this guy's origins. As a boy, he went with his father to Tierra del Fuego, the land of fire, which is a real place at the southern tip of South America, which is kind of close to the savage land, I suppose, in the Marvel Universe. During this expedition, they were with Air Anderson, Air like H-E-R-R, like German mister. <laughs> so Air Anderson and his daughter, Tanya. Uh, Carl gets scratched by an attacking Pteranodon, and for some reason, which never really quite explained, uh, he now needs to drain life from others in order to stay alive. Years later, he has his degree in psychiatry. He learns that he can drain, uh, or he, he he posits that if he drains life from mutants, maybe that will help even more. So now he, he's been like sucking life from his patients in therapy, which I often feel like I do, but not on purpose. <laughs> And uh, anyway, now he is Sauron, who's basically a pterodactyl in pants. Uh, So this issue is called Monsters Also Weep, X-Men number 61, October 1969. The writer's Roy Thomas. The pencils uh, are beautiful by Neil Adams uh, and inks by Tom Palmer. Uh, We don't know who the colorist is. They don't label him back then. Sam Sam Rosen is the letterer. Stan Lee is the editor. Uh, As we're delving in, we'll kind of hear some summaries and then talk about them. Phil, do you want to take us through the first part of the book? 
Yeah, sure. This uh, art is fantastic. In these first couple of pages here, um, I have a fantastic uh, cover of Sauron, the pterodactyl in pants with a dragon tail, whom you just described, holding on to poor Angel Warren Worthington and shooting him with some kind of terrible eye beams as it appears. And I've got some fantastic titles here on the wings of death. And here's the X-Men on a kind of overpass nearby watching helplessly as this uh, aerial melee takes place. Uh, do you guys have thoughts on this cover before we delve in? I think it's beautiful. The aerial battle above the bridge, I think it's stunning. Uh, I think it's fantastic too. And and I, you talked about Neil Adams and his fantastic artwork. And one thing that we will see throughout my sequence and much of this book is that Neil Adams has drawn very strategically here. So we have fantastic figures, one of the greatest pencilers artists in the history of comics, but he hasn't drawn a sky on this cover uh, there are a lot of environments in this first couple of pages where all we have is action against solid color panels, which is a choice. And um, the other thing that he does, so we get into a great splash page. Um, once we're in the book, we see the front of Sauron and uh, Angel, and he says uh, to kind of footstomp the original eye beam thing from the cover. He says, your eyes, your eyes. And then we're into Neil Adams changing the orientation of the page. So if you imagine holding a comic book, what we have on page two or three here is turning it on its portraits uh, from a portrait style to a horizontal style, let's say, and then some diagonal, diagonal uh, slashing panels that go across. And poor Warren is in a bad way fighting Sauron because not only is he a pterodactyl in pants with a dragon tail, we learn he has what appear to be hypnosis powers. He has... Uh, shot poor angel with these beams and now they're these terrible monsters that are coming toward him um angel uh, is not doing well he uh, is kind of freaking out uh, but then as he learns what he's up against here he uh flies through one of the monsters and the question is which one of these things is a real monster and which one of them uh is an illusion created by sauron and then we have kind of a stanley flashback page that follows that which is brilliantly integrated into Sauron's wing flaps where we have panels within his like bat vein aspects of his wings where we have his origin story and then we're um, back into portrait mode again and we have a couple of conventional action panels and uh, who's this who's coming to Angel's help it's the X-Men including one of my favorite X-Men of all time Jean Grey Marvel Girl, and she's wearing her greatest single X-Men uniform of all time, her iconic green dress with her yellow mask and her yellow gloves and boots. And she uses her mental powers to kind of zap Sauron real fast so that he leaves Cyclops and Angel alone. But then he shoots her with his hypnosis beams, and she looks over, and where Beast and uh, Cyclops were standing right next to her before, Neil Adams draws these absolutely fantastic kind of melted monster images of the two and we see from Jean's perspective where she has seen her friends in the x-men kind of melt into these terrible apparitions and uh I, does that take me through my page yeah, yeah. That's, that's beautiful um, uh, a lot of lot of action uh not a lot of not a lot of story would you say but a lot of action and and fantastic uh absolutely absolutely uh amazing execution here by this team there's a there's an earlier issue where the angel fights the red raven uh that's the episode we did with greg Shegel. if you go back 
Uh, the aerial battles aren't as effective. It seems like kind of zooming around close spaces. Uh, Neil Adams' ability to draw things like looking like they're from the sky, this, uh, this ability where everything's on the ground is soft until they go under the bridge and Cyclops zaps him, right? Uh, it's, uh, I think it's really beautifully done. Uh, Derek and Ramsey, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this first section. Well, first of all, I just want to say, I, I, I feel like I'm going to be a broken record because I'm going to constantly talk about gender. I, I think it's fascinating that the, uh, the issue begins with like a reptilian male psychically penetrating this man <laughs> in his head. And did I get this right, that he was his therapist? Uh, well, yeah, for a second. Okay, but that's mind-boggling, literally and figuratively. <laughs> like, it's basically, again, I mean, I'm, I, I had not been, despite being an expert on the X-Men, like, I'm not as familiar with the 60s X-Men. And I, I have to admit that Roy Thomas really rubs me the wrong way. And uh, but but I'm fascinated because like there's a way in which like he is obsessed with uh, male internal conflict. Like women are really like ancillary to the whole story. They're like be they're beautiful, but like kind of useless. And he seems like obsessively focused on the relationship that men have with each other. And I think it's it's telling that it opens with this really dark green figure, Saran, right, who's also kind of like racialized here who's obsessed with getting in the head of this beautiful, angelic white man, right? And is like constantly throughout the issue, like he's speaking in like Shakespearean language about his desire to consume. Like, like I just, that's like what pops out to me about the, the, the initial cover. Like, I find that so fascinating. He's got a little bit everything. He's a little bit Hulk with his pants. He's a little bit Prince Namor with his kind of stilted, uh, amateur dramatic Shakespeare rhetoric that he uses. And he's a little bit the lizard, uh, the Spider-Man villain. In fact, I think the lizard had been well along in the Marvel universe by this time. Yeah, yeah. And so Stan and the Marvel creative team have just kind of like hit copy paste on Sauron, except I, I would love to have been in this pitch meeting where Stan is like, okay, it's it's the lizard, but he's a dinosaur. And they're all like, <laughs> fantastic, fantastic Stan. I can't wait. How many pages do we need? Uh, yeah, it also makes me think of uh, a Fin Fang Foom, you know, Jack Kirby's creation, because he's another, he's a dragon wearing pants. Sure. You know, that's, uh, I was thinking like, that's a kind of Marvel thing. It's, uh, you know, the, it, I mean, I guess that's just part of the 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 Comics Code Authority and like, you, you couldn't possibly show anything that might be genitalia. So obviously they've got to wear something, uh, no matter whether they're, you know, animal or human. You know, the thing that actually strikes me about this, I, I agree with Ramsey, I have this I read a lot of Roy Thomas, Roy Thomas comics uh, as a kid, um, you know, without really paying that much attention to who he was or anything. Um, and he does often rub me the wrong way, uh, and especially around gender and also race. He can be pretty ignorant or just kind of be, do things that are, I think are not all that interesting to, to see with his characters. Um, this story for me is interesting in that just as I was talking about how Claremont is really interested in the, the kind of battle between good and evil um, within a particular character, this is what is at the center of this story for Carl Lycos, right? That it's his evil side, which is Sauron, and then there's him, his love for Tanya, which is his good side, which in some ways redeems him. Um, and what's surprising to me in a lot of ways in reading these issues, um, because actually, this is my first time reading these particular issues. I've read a lot of volume one, but not this, these particular issues, even though I love Neil Adams' art. Um, but is that 
where are the X-Men? You know, it's sort of like the, the X-Men are chasing people around. They're chasing Tanya to get to find Carl Lycus at the end. They're, they're doing all this stuff where they're kind of off on the periphery. Alex is lying mute, being drained. Uh, Lorna is speaking to herself about like making connections so that he overhears it. But we're really mostly focused on Carl Lycus's inner battle. And I think that's really interesting. I mean, I, 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 I don't, I think it's it's a strange narrative choice for me in the sense that we as readers, if we're reading in 1969 or if we're reading now, have no particular investment in Carlycos. We don't know him. So for him to have a battle between his good and evil side isn't inherently drawing us in the way it certainly does if Jean Grey is doing it, because we know her uh, and we're invested in her. Um, but I think it's interesting that he doesn't, and maybe, you know, I maybe I'd agree with, I didn't really think about this, but I would agree with Ramsey that there's, it's partly this sort of obsession that Thomas has with male psychology and kind of working through uh, that with his, his work. Um, I, I mean, I, I, I think the Neil Adams art is just fantastic. I mean, and I, I, I love looking at his work in Batman and, and X-Men and, uh, you know, Neil Adams recently passed, um, and I, uh, I I just appreciate being able to see what he's doing with this kind of photorealist work that he's doing with uh, yeah, the yeah. drawing of the the characters' faces, and um, yeah. So I, that, that's what the, those are the things I think about. I, I also the other thing about this, and I wanted to ask you, Chad, why is this your favorite villain? Uh, awesome. Yeah, like I just it's interesting to me because I really only he I I don't think it appears that often. Like there's this. The X-Men, the new X-Men encounter him in the Savage Land where he drains Storm. Um, and uh, and I think that's pretty much all the time that I've really seen him for the most part. He, uh, well, let me let me answer that question first and then I'll delve into some of your thoughts very quickly. Sauron is camp ridiculousness. There's mm-hmm. something about a pterodactyl man wearing pants that is mm-hmm. so stupid, but also so frightening. He's so individual. There's There's something about his look uh, in the more modern comics, he's just obsessed with like getting vengeance for all dinosaurs. Like <laughs> he wants to turn people into dinosaurs every 10 years ago. So they give him a new power. He can breathe fire. He's telekinetic. He's got a little bit of like rogue stuff sometimes where like he'll drain Wolverine's power, but then have a healing factor for a minute. Uh, something about the the battle between good and evil in his soul but it's just the ridiculousness of this character that I love. If I have to choose one villain, he makes me get like, <laughs> like every time he's just so stupid. I, uh, I, I, but I love the camp about him is what I love more than anything. Uh, something that has helped me, and I do admire a lot of Roy Thomas's work, but I've also commented on the problems about it on the pod. Uh, Roy Thomas is very horny <laughs> in the way he writes. But one of the ways that helps me piece together Marvel's 60s offices uh, is if you guys have seen the show Mad Men, it's a bunch of white guys hanging out at an office in New York together, and there's like four women in the office. And uh, most of those women are in relationships with the white men that are working. Uh, there's like one person of color at a time. And uh, every few years, kind of some new blood moves in. And it does it does go through a, a lot of big changes in the early 70s, uh, where, you know, Steve Englehart and, uh, and Len Wein and Chris Claremont and a bunch of uh, new blood starts coming in. But uh, but yeah, the 60s are largely dominated by uh, the Neil Adams era. We're breaking out of the Jack Kirby era, but we're moving into new space where there's a lot more experimentation and the, and the line of books has changed. But uh, yeah, I have to go back to Mad Men in my brain to kind of make sense of the type of product that was being put out. 
Uh, okay, let's go to Ramsey next. Uh, I would love to hear your thoughts on the middle section of this book. And you better believe I selectively uh, chose these pages for you. <laughs> yeah, well, and I'm also like now formulating like a theory of this issue based on what everybody has said and Derek's point that like suddenly the X-Men get sidelined and we get such a focus on Sauron. Uh, I don't know why I pronounce it Sauron. I think that's because that's how I heard it in the cartoon. It's pro- it's just Sauron, right? Or No, it's probably because of Lord of the Rings, actually. That's why. Um, so over the next five pages or so, what we get is like the unfolding battle in the sky between Sauron and the various, especially specifically the male members of uh, the X-Men. And so on page eight, we see what looks like a fractured pane of glass. There are like four, like a lot of, of, the Neil Adams uh, images look like they're shattered glass so that all of the different uh, panels are like unevenly shaped. They're like parallelograms and all of these different kind of unusual um, rectangles. Um, So we see him first go up against Angel. There's a a kind of like boy sounding, um, kind of like they're bullying each other, right? Like, so Angel says like, you know, while you're busy developing all those superpowers, plug ugly. Like, why don't you also enroll in a memory course? Like you forgot about me. And so everybody's, trying to use their powers to um, subdue Sauron, but he seems to be outwitting them. On page nine, Iceman does his thing. Um, and we discover that Sauron freaks out about being fro- about being cold. Um, and, and yet he's able to kind of break Iceman's ice slide. Uh, so one by one, we're kind of seeing him outwit all of the X-Men. Uh, but on page 10 we start seeing this really interesting, this series of rectangular panels in which Sauron seems to be succeeding against the X-Men, but then we see the host, uh, Alex Summers, who he had kind of leached the energy of, lying, um, sleeping or dormant, uh, but being potentially awoken by uh, the ring of a telephone. And as he wakes up, Sauron loses, begins to lose his powers and begins to shapeshift back into his human form. And so on page 11, um, he kind of, in, in, a, in a state of anxiety as he's beginning to lose his powers, he hypnotizes Angel in order to convince him to fly him away back to um, uh, back to safety. And the rest of the X-Men are just kind of completely bewildered. They're like, why is, why is Angel flying away from us? Um, they don't realize that he's hypnotized, but they suspect. And then on page 12, um, Angel flies uh, Sauron back in his human form as Carl Lycos back to his... Uh, his doctor's office, where he uh, walks in on Alex Summers still laying on a table, and then his girlfriend Tanya has appeared. Um, can I can I just pause yeah. it quickly? Anytime Tanya speaks uh, for me, it's 1940s actress like overacting. Oh yeah, like, that's the voice every time. <laughs> She's like, I suddenly had a premonition <laughs> that something dreadful had happened to you. So we see that, uh, you know, this this uh, reptilian villain also has love in his life. Um, uh, so we see kind of like the softer side. And then all of a sudden, we, we don't know how, but the X-Men are suddenly in, in their mod 60s outfits, um, <laughs> uh, walking up the stairs to Carl Lycos's office to find Alex Summers. So, and, so if I may, I'm going to go yeah. 1940s for just one panel and do Tanya and Carl just in my own voice. I yeah. thought you were still in Scarsdale, my darling. You know that your father has forbidden you to see me. I, I had to come, dear Carl. 
I phoned you from the hotel, but there was no answer. Suddenly I had a fear, a premonition that something dreadful had happened to you. Then you needed me and I wasn't there. Like all of the dialogue in this soap opera about Carl's life. I just, I just go to like an old Betty Davis movie, like Joan Crawford. She sounds like yeah. Mary Esther in the Maltese Falcon. <laughs> yeah, truly. No, absolutely. I mean, and she's also, of course, like a blonde bombshell. Um, so on the last page of this section uh, that I'm looking at, the X-Men walk in, all of a sudden, Carl Lycos is a doctor again. It's as though nothing had happened, like he hadn't been in an aerial battle with them just moments ago. Alex Summers is awake. He's doing great. He does. He's not sick anymore. Um, and uh, uh, Tanya is, is just uh, basically celebrating uh, uh, Carl, telling him she's so proud of him for helping Alex Summers. And right as, as it seems like everything is fine, uh, Tanya's father breaks in and reminds everybody that um, that Carl is a charlatan and a fraud, and he'll die a pauper. Um, and and he he'll he'd rather see himself dead than see Carl marry his daughter. And it, again, it's like very uh, it's very nineteen forties here for me. All of the dialogue. I should be so happy to be called your wife. That's impossible, Tanya. You know that your father would never allow it. For once, you speak the truth, Carl Lycos. Like it's just there. <laughs> I want to pick like soap opera, like harsh angles, like dun dun dun. Like it's a very wow. tough novella. Lots it's of so mirror true. reflections. <laughs> it's so true. Uh, Derek and Phil, any comments on this section? Uh, I love these kinds of comics. The, you, we we can't have these kinds of comics anymore. They remind me of the issue of Spider Man, where in the same issue, we learn that Betty Brant's brother is in deep with the mob. Spider Man has to go down to Philadelphia to help save him from one of the bad guys, maybe the Green Goblin. And uh, he is killed in this mob melee. And then Spider-Man and Betty return to New York. And she explains to Peter Parker that she now hates Spider-Man because he was responsible for her brother's death. This is over 24 pages. It's I like, love Betty it's like incredibly love compact, <laughs> uh, three acts of a story. And every panel is doing all this work, all the words, every line. And then you're out of it. 24 pages, you're done. It's fantastic entertainment. And there's no commitment. There's no cliffhangers. The next issue arrives the next month. And you're like, okay, we're off on another thing. I love it. <laughs> yeah, I, I think those soap opera elements are, um, they're fun. Uh, they're, they are way over the top. I think, you know, interestingly, again, I mean, I, and I don't want to be dumping on Roy Thomas because he also did a lot of great stuff uh, and I liked a lot of his comics. But I think Stan Lee and Jack Kirby, because they did romance comics before they were doing, they invented Fantastic Four and Jack Kirby has a whole, you know, bunch of them that he, that he, he drew. They do the soap opera stuff better. Uh, it's just, it's not as, I mean, it can be melodramatic and all those sorts of things. Stan Lee, of course, loves to write melodramatic lines. Um, but it just is kind of more, it seems more grounded in some kind of conception of the psychology of the character. I mean, here it's, there's sort of crazy stuff, but of course, just like I said before, one of the reasons it seems crazy and doesn't need to be grounded in any real psychology, it's just kind of overacting, is we don't know these characters. So yeah. they're just kind of showing up to emote. Uh, and so it's, it, you know, it, it just makes it sort of a, a sort of a, a, a funny, <laughs> a funny confrontation. As, as we're transitioning to your section, I promise this is the last time I'll do this. I'll better do one more panel. I am of age now, father. If Carl wants me, I should. No, I can't marry you. I won't marry you. Not while the shadow of wealth falls between us. <laughs> That's all. Can I just say something? I mean, is this not... 
Yeah, is this not an allegory for the comics creator circa 1968? I mean, this is, I think this answers Derek's point. Like, I'm going to do a quick, like, really hard allegorical reading, right? There's so many different ways to interpret any given text. But, like, I do this in The New Mutants. I have a moment where I say, like, the introduction of all these black and white, like, duos in the 70s was really about the anxiety of white creators, that they were telling only stories about themselves. And I think this is an amazing moment where, like, we're just about six issues from when the first one of the X-Men is going to be canceled, right? Like the figure of the four, the five white mutant superheroes just fails to capture the imagination of a young generation of people who are like in, like who are part of the civil rights movement and the social justice left. And what you get is like a white male therapeutic fantasist, right? Sauron, who's like inhabiting the minds of other people who himself feels like he's become monstrous, but is desperate to leech all of the energy of these characters, which is what the comic book creator is in this moment, right? Like this is Roy Tom, this is the comic book creator is like somebody in the shadows who is fantasizing all of these mutants and drawing sustenance from them, but not making a lot of money at it, right? And so like what happens is that Sauron becomes like the anguished internal monologue of the comic book creator who's like, what am I doing with these mutant characters? Like, is it going anywhere? Like, mm -hmm. who are they anyway? And am I gonna get a job with this? And am I gonna like get a wife? Is anyone gonna want me to marry them? I think it's no surprise that, th that then the series collapses. Well, and right around this, right around this time, Roy Thomas lost his wife because he was working too hard. But but I mean, I think it's so interesting that that anxiety is being played out on the pages of the comic just as this first run is about to end. And then when we get the resurgence of the X-Men, it's a completely different approach to the way the X-Men, and that one ends up being successful in a different way. Fantastic. Uh, Derek, take us through the end. Uh, okay, so this is the the way things get resolved. So we have some more continuation uh, starting on page four or fourteen, where I, my section begins. Uh, the confrontation between Hare Anderson, Carl Lycos, and Tanya, uh, where you read that line that when you read it, I just I, I, don't, I, I laugh and cringe. The shadow of wealth falls between us, you know. After the line about he shall become a pauper, you know, which just is so like I'm like. Wait a minute. Are we doing some sort of Jane Austen Regency era concern about marriage? I I don't like. What is this about money? It just seems sort of crazy. But they they have a fight about that. And then interestingly, so here's a point where Tanya is as a as a character, a female character, does a little act of independence, uh, which you know seems to be like a tiny crack opening to the women's liberation movement that's already second wave feminism that is well underway, uh, where. Um, when Carl Lycos says, I can't marry you while the shadow of wealth falls between us. And uh, Hare Anderson says, well, that makes you a bigger man in my eyes. And then she says, and a greater fool in my eyes, so that she's, you know, she's speaking for her own position, which is she cares more about love than whether the, than the shadow of wealth that is falling between them. And then there's also another interesting little part there, just kind of on that same theme where at the bottom of that page, um, as uh, Anderson, leaves, um, we have a thought balloon for Jean Grey, uh, where she says, what a bitter tormented man Carl Lycos must be. And emphasis, you know, the the letterer emphasized man uh, in, the, in the line. Uh, and so that's, you know, it's interesting that she, you know, as they're not even thinking, I, I don't know that they're thinking about this, but she's the telepath, she could read minds. Um, and she is thinking, you know, it, she's, she's having a judgment about Carl Lycos 
when she sees him interact with his fiance um that is that he's fucked up is what she's what she's realizing and he's a fucked up man is what she's what the letters seem to be saying and i think it's just interesting you have that little blip uh where again the women are generally rendered as you say, it was sort of, you know, at best 1940s Betty Davis or something, but that's at best, you know. Um, so uh, we have that happening. And then um, Angel uh, is kind of coming out of his stupor. And then he, they want to take Angel to Lycos to be, um, you know, I guess they'd be ther therapized in some way as, as Alex Summers has been. Uh, and he doesn't want to see Carl Lycos. And so then we have this interesting sort of segment where Lorna Dane is left um, watching Angel and she's putting together these, you know, various aspects of the, the case that they've been, that they've been thinking, trying to figure out what's going on. Um, and she's speaking out loud about a couple of things. One of them is that she's in love with Alex. Uh, and she, and here's another thing where she's been saying a couple of times, look, I don't, uh, Bobby thinks he's, that I'm in love with him, but I'm not, that he's I don't belong to him I don't belong to anybody I belong to myself so again there's this little slight proto-feminism that seems to be there um and then she's revealing that she's in love with Alex and as she's speaking all of that aloud she's revealing that she's a mutant and Carl Lycos of course is lurking around and it's like ah so I get some more mutant power and so he comes in and he transforms himself again into Sauron by draining Lorna uh, after she's given away that she's a mutant by speaking aloud what her thoughts are and a uh, quick recap on Lorna she shows up when Mesmero is mind controlling her the X-Men pick her up off the street and she's literally like I don't know where I am and Iceman's like okay you're my girlfriend now <laughs> like she she kind of just gets appropriated into the X-Men so we're finally seeing her have a little bit of will here which is important right and connecting yourself to somebody of her own choice, evidently. Um, so then uh, we have Sauron returning and he's confronting Herr Anderson and Tanya and he's possibly going to kill Herr Anderson, um, but then he doesn't because he realizes that what would happen if I killed Tanya's father in front of her, even though she doesn't necessarily know that he's Sauron or whatever, it's just that she, it would have some, you know, it would be terrible for her. So that's when his good side um leaps up and makes him not commit an act of violence that he wants to commit he flies away they don't know where he's flying to the x-men are there they try to battle him a little bit on the next page um and they don't know where he's going and tanya does know she says a thought balloon i do know where he's going and no one must find him before the girl who loves him no one uh with this emphasis uh so we didn't get this panel of of, of sauron flying through the air um, and he ends up in, uh, I guess it's Tierra del Fuego. Yeah, where um, he first got scratched by the Pteranodons in the first place. Right, where he suddenly, strangely acquired that transformative power, which we, really makes no sense at all that I can figure out. Um, but he is there, um, and he's having this sort of battle within himself, and suddenly Tanya shows up, and he, for a moment, thinks, Oh, I've got somebody here. I'm, I've lost my a lot of my energies. I've flown all the way down here. If I drain her, I have a few more moments of life because I'm actually gone all the way down here to die uh, because I'm gonna I'm gonna lose all. I won't be able to continue to live if I can't keep draining people. Uh, and then he realizes how awful that is that he's considering draining his own fiance. So then he decides he's gonna leap over and uh, off the precipice and supposedly kill himself. Although 
because uh, he's not in Sauron form, so I guess that would be uh, the way he's killing himself. But of course, he doesn't really die, as we know, because he comes back. Um, and when the X-Men arrive, because they've been following Tanya, um, and again, always kind of on the periphery, the X-Men in this 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 sequence of the, these two issues, and then they save Tanya from going also over the precipice. Um, and so that's the way things end. Um, and we have that last bit that kind of sums up what Thomas is doing. That Cyclops says, two beings struggled for supremacy within Karlikos, one of them a monster, but it was the man who won out even in death. And somehow we must find strength in that. Um, so <laughs> there's the, that's, that's the way it ends. Um, and uh, yeah. Uh, two things I want to comment on very quickly. Iceman is very possessive over Lorna. It's kind of a background thing. There's a moment where he must see the way she's looking at Alex and he's like, she's my chick. And there's going to be a lot of Iceman and Alex arguing over who Lorna belongs to in the coming <laughs> issues, frankly, in the next couple of years before Lorna and Alex wind up together. Uh, and that, that extends into the X-Men, the Hidden Years series that John Byrne does in the 2000s that's set after the original series. There's also a moment where Lorna is, uh, right before Lycos drains her, she's reading some of like Xavier's missing notebooks, because Xavier's believed that at this time. And uh, it says, she read it, she says out loud, the, this, this missing notebook says, it states that while working with him, meaning Lycos, Xavier discovered that Carl Lycos was something called a non-mutant variant. This has literally never been explained in the comics. We have a very passing mention, and it's referenced in the X-Men Forever series, that Lycos worked with Xavier and Moira on the Mutant Genome Project. So I'm going to blame Moira McTaggart for Sauron. <laughs> that's something that's easy to do in today's comics. She's the worst supervillain. Uh, and uh, we, But this is something that needs to be explored in the comics a little bit. I'm not quite sure what a non-mutant variant is, but some sort of experiment was done that kind of the, the way the pterodactyl scratched him interacted with whatever this experiment was that turns him into this crazy guy. Uh, there's actually a lot that could be explored with this character. Um, Tanya next shows up in Chris Claremont's story about the Savage Land in, uh, in oh, I forgot the name of the site, a Marvel fanfare one through four, which is like an angel Sauron story with the Savage Land mutates. Uh, she shows up for a couple issues there. And then the next time she shows up after that is in X-Force number five in uh, 1991. This is uh, Fabian Nicieza and, uh, and Rob Leifeld. And uh, Toad has taken over the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. Carl Lycos is living happily with Tanya. And Toad with like Blob and Blob at his side, I think Pyro's there, uh, drains Tanya's life via machine into Lycos and forces his transformation back into Sauron. And Tanya is killed. She kind of gets fridged. So this, this character does not show up very much. Uh, again, Sauron next appears uh, in Claremont's uh, X-Men or Uncanny X-Men 114 through 116, uh, which is the, the the battle we referenced earlier. So uh, there's some continuity catch-ups for everybody. Uh, what are your thoughts on this issue? Uh, as we're kind of wrapping up, did you enjoy yourself? Was it something that you hated? <laughs> what did you guys like about this? I thought it was fantastic. And it reminded me of one of the tip videos that Neil Adams made or was made about him uh, towards the end of his life, uh, where he would do these sketches at cons with a simple number two pencil. And his skill was so fantastic that he didn't, he, he wasn't like some of these guys who have a special lead holder or special tools or equipment that they need to do these things. He would use like a general's number two or like a Ticonderoga pencil 
and make these sketches because his talent was just so incredible. And he would talk to camera and he would say, now you young artists out there, you're going to have people who try to sell you a different eraser and have your pencil and your eraser be different. But what if you need to do this? And he would just turn his pencil over and erase his pencil marks with the back of it. And then he would get ready to do the ink or move on from his sketch or whatever. And it's amazing to see even at this stage in what was it, 1969, that a talent um, of his level was able to make such an entertaining comic book and then continue with many other uh, Marvel and DC books, Dead Man and Batman and so many others, you know, down through the years until recently. Fantastic. Uh, Ramsey, Derek, any final thoughts? Um, I also really appreciate Neil Adams' art most about these issues. Um, and I, I'm aware kind of in the comics history or the history of the X-Men, like his arrival was an attempt to inject this sort of freshness into that comic that was about to die. Um, but I love looking at his art, which I was, when I think about it, I, when I first read somebody giving a kind of categorization of Neil Adams' art, they were calling it photorealist. And I used that word earlier. But as I think about it, um, it isn't just photorealist, it's it's photorealism with its own stylization, because that that person was was kind of creating a dichotomy between photorealist sort of art, comics book art, where you're trying to reproduce as though it were photography of real bodies, of these fantastic bodies, uh, as opposed to art where there's a signature style that clearly isn't meant to be looking as though it's real, it's looking like the style of the artist. Um, and I think there's a way where Neil Adams combines those two things, uh, just in the way that he's drawing um, the figures, their movement, uh, the women in their hair. There are all these things that he does that are uh, very stylized and stylized in a really beautiful way. Um, the story for me is, you know, I, I, I don't understand, like, I don't understand Sauron's power. I, as a Tolkien fan, have never understood why on earth you pull that reference. I'm like, there is no correspondence between Carl Lycos and Sauron the Dark Lord. I'm sorry, there's just nothing. There's except, nothing uh, except Dinosauron. Except, <laughs> except, <laughs> except it's, it's intellectual property that you can steal. You don't have to think up a name of a new yeah. character. Right. In the same way that Wonder Woman doesn't need a real origin story. She's just like, oh yeah, she's from ancient Greece or like whatever. <laughs> you know, it was some one of those places. I don't have to make it up. <laughs> it's just bizarre to me. I mean, I guess it's just fanboy stuff, but uh, that for Roy Thomas. But but this is how much of a Tolkien nerd I am. I looked up. I have my little reader's companion to Lord of the Rings. But what's the origin of Sauron for Tolkien? Is he making some sort of reference to dinosaurs? No, he explicitly says in a letter that because you know he invented languages for his all of it, for his different peoples in the in the middle in Middle Earth. It's, it's a word that means despicable uh, or detestable, and it has even though it, it corresponds to the Greek word sore, which refers to lizard, it is absolutely not the same thing. You know, so I just I don't know. I, whenever I I think when I first came to the I, when I encountered Sauron first, I thought, oh my God, we've got Lord of the Rings in here somehow, and I was always disappointed that. <laughs> it wasn't really happening. Uh, I, I'm going to be adding uh, 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 art by Matt Horak of Sauron to my wall within the next couple of weeks. So I'll be excited to post that. I just saw the first images and they're so pretty. Uh, I, I I know this character is ridiculous. I just love him. We're also going to be doing a trial of Sauron in 2023. So everybody stay tuned. We're going to have a lot to say about this guy. <laughs> uh, uh, Ramsey, any final thoughts? You know, I'm, I mean, 
I agree that the, I think the artwork is uh, amazing. And I think the story is lacking in terms of its richness. But I think like being a Metacritic of the X-Men, I think what fascinates me, like I said earlier about this issue, is that all of the contradictions at the core of the issue like represent this moment of, of transformation in American comics. When like we're right on the verge of the moment when like civil rights, black power, the women's movement, gay liberation are going to like explode onto the American scene. They're going to force comics creators to reinvent the kind of characters and kind of stories they tell. And you see this last gasp of like a certain kind of white male writer agonizing internally about their own role in the history of comics through these characters, while at the same time you get an artist innovating at an incredibly high level so there's a huge artistic innovation, whereas the story is not innovating. And that's a deep contradiction that is like going to propel outward into this new generation of comics that will become the Mar Marvel in the 70s. And so I think in some ways, like what fascinates me is not so much like the issues content itself, but what it represents, which is this like moment of tension where like a new, like something new is about to be born, but it's like the agony and the melodrama of the comic book is kind of capturing that uh, while it's also literally crashing to the ground, like the way that Sauron is. And I, that's what I find really fascinating about it. Fantastic. Uh, I had such a good time with each of you today. Thank you for coming in and sharing your thoughts, your insights. Uh, I smiled all the way through the episode and I'm leaving with a lot of really incredible thoughts and uh, and ideas uh, that'll take me some time to kind of sort out. So uh, we covered a lot of wonderful content. So I really appreciate all of your time and your talents today. I'm going to take just a moment. We are announcing major program changes to Gray Malkin Lane in the new year. And I'm going to do that here for the first time. Uh, we are going to be uh, streamlining our release schedule. So new episodes will be coming out on Mondays, new Patreon episodes out on Wednesdays. So you have a lot of... Uh, consistency with the one exception being on the fourth Thursday of every month is when we're in Thanksgiving style, we're going to be releasing our character trial that we do once a month. So I'm going to announce the January schedule for the main show here. We'll do the Patreon another time. Uh, January 2nd, we have X-Men Origins Cyclops number one with the guest Bob Hall. On January 9th, we have Avengers Origins Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver number one with the incredible team of Russell Dowderman and Steve Orlando who are going to be releasing the new Scarlet Witch series. January 16th, we're continuing with the X-Men run, X-Men 62, which is the first appearance of the Savage Land Mutates and the Return of Magneto with the incredible legendary artist uh, Val Merrick. And on January 23rd, uh, we've got X-Men 63 with the Silver Sable writer uh, Gregory Wright. Uh, January 26th is the trial of Sean Cassidy, uh, Banshee. And then on January 30th, we're delving into another modern book set in the 60s. It's Century X-Men number one with the incredible guest, uh, Tom Brevoort. So incredible things coming up with some cool stuff coming up on the Patreon channel as well. Uh, you can find Gray Malkin Lane, Gray Malkin PP like podcast on Twitter, Gray Malkin underscore Lane on Instagram. Say hi anytime. I'm always happy to hear from you. Uh, as each of you are leaving, recognizing we're putting this out on December 28th, let us know where we can find you online. And if there's anything you'd like to plug, we would be happy to have you do so. Let's go in the same order of Ramsey, Phil, and then Derek. Oh, um, so you can find me on Instagram uh, under the name Nerd from the Future. Um, <laughs> and, uh, I, you know, I'm still traveling around um, promoting my new book, Queer Forms, uh, which is about queer and feminist culture in the 1970s. And uh, I would love to hear what people think of that. So if people want to pick that up, uh, you can find it at any um, online bookstore or at your local bookstore. 
wonderful. Thank you for coming back, Ramsey. It's great. Thanks to for you. having me. Uh, Phil. At Phil Ewing on Twitter, promulgating an eclectic mix of national security content and comic book material. And I'll look forward to seeing everyone there if Twitter's still around. I think it's going to be. <laughs> then uh, finally, Derek. Uh, I will just plug my book again, Keeping It Unreal, Black Queer Fantasy and Superhero Comics, published by NYU Press earlier this year. But you can find it in your local bookstore or online. Uh, and I really have very little online presence, so you can't really find me anywhere. <laughs> well, thank you all. I am so inspired by each of you. Uh, what a wonderful time this was. We will see you all back here next time on Grey Malkin Lane. Thank you for listening to Grey Malkin Lane. We hope you are enjoying this podcast. Grey Malkin Lane is produced and recorded in Salt Lake City, Utah, with music and editing done by my husband, Michael Bell, and promo art done by the incredible Seth Martell. Look for us on Patreon, where we are releasing weekly episodes about obscure characters and facts. Uh, It's a great way to participate with the podcast for only just a couple of dollars a month, and it helps support what we are doing here. Also, the best way you could help Grandma Can Lane is by sharing and liking and subscribing, but also please leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'll see you back here next time on Grandma Can Lane.